Well, I, um, I'm a bit of a, com- not computer, I'm a computer nerd, but uh, I'm also a Bible nerd. And uh, this, this actually, this Bible doesn't really show it, although uh, it is a single column Bible, which if you have done any sort of reading and spent time in the Word, you, you might have thought, oh, it'd be nice if the Bible was not split up into two columns with a bunch of random stuff in the middle. And I've spent a lot of time looking for the perfect Bible. I've got a bunch of Bibles. It's, it's almost shameful, especially considering, you know, if, if we had anyone who was watching from another place besides the U.S. Uh, I remember serving in, in China, and I mean, we're trying to bring Bibles in, single Bibles in to China. China. And here I have in my home office a whole shelf area f- devoted to Bibles. But I, I appreciate Bibles, and I think that uh, one of the things I love and, and, and like to learn about is the fact that there was, a, especially in the Middle Ages, there was a, a, a philosophy behind crafting of these books that the, the, the craftsmanship and the makeup ought to reflect something of the nature of the words that the book held. And through the, through, really in this period between 500 AD and, and kind of 1500 AD, around the time that the, the printing press was created, in that time in between, you had books being made, and most of which were religious, many of which were Bibles. You had them being handcrafted. And they were being carefully made, and you had these illuminated, they're called illuminated manuscripts. They were called illuminated manuscripts because they would take the, the words of God and they would, they would adorn it, they would decorate it with, um, with artwork, with um, fancy uh, typefaces or fonts, as we would say, and, and they would use gold ink, gold and silver ink. And so it literally would illuminate the Bible. And it, the, the, the illumination, the, the gilding, would draw attention to the words themselves. And there was this almost um, meshing or, or melding of the, the physical and vi- the visual beauty of the words and then the, the beauty of the contents of the words, right? The, we believe that the, this is the word of God and it expresses something about the, the nature and character of who God is and the, the makers of these these illuminated manuscripts believe that that beauty ought to be expressed not only in, in the words themselves, but in the craftsmanship of the, the pages and the, and the fonts that were used. The, uh, the artwork was in, in, intended to accompany the beauty of the words themselves. And so um, today I wanted to consider something a little bit similar. I think that that's a good picture for what God does with his glory. When we think about the glory of God, we consider it his greatness, his, his majesty, his, um, you would almost think of it as his shining out. And the Bible sometimes uses the language of light and shining to describe his glory. But when, when we see in scripture God describing his glory, very often we see his glory being gilded or being adorned, being expressed in the context of grace. And so... I want to look at a text in which God's glory is expressed in this grace-gilded way. So let's look at uh, Psalm 138. Psalm 138, verses 1 through 8. It's it's a short psalm, uh, and we're going to read it together. Now, if you're not familiar with this, we stand in in the reading of the scriptures. We do that as a way of reverencing scripture and a way of engaging our whole body. 
It's a kinesthetic learning thing as well as a, a, a God-honoring thing. So we're going to read this together uh, as, as carefully as I'm able to do so. Psalm 138, verses 1 through 8. I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. Verse four. All the kings of the earth shall give you Give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your glory that is expressed in your grace. God, we thank you that you are not just a God of strength and might, but a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. That you show yourself strong when you show yourself loving. And God, I pray that we would, we would see and appreciate and worship and give thanks for your gracious, grace-gilded glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. If you're online, thank you for reading along with us. So we see that this is a, it's a thanksgiving psalm. There are different types of psalms. Some are laments. Um, some are imprecatory. They're praying for God's justice and his wrath. This one is praying his, his thanksgiving. It's praying an expression of God's goodness and God, we're thankful to you. And the psalmist is expressing wholehearted gratitude. It says in verse one, I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. And last week we looked at the, the two most important commands in scripture as as given to us by Jesus, he says, love the Lord God with all your heart, uh, soul, and strength. And here we see that the psalmist is expressing gratitude with his whole heart. There's a sense that the love of God is being poured out wholeheartedly for what he has done. He goes on and he says, before the gods I sing your praise. Now, the, the, the writer of Psalms is not saying that there's a pantheon, that there's smaller gods, lesser gods. He's saying of, of the quote-unquote gods, of the gods that, that the world would try to worship, over against them, I sing your praise, God. I sing your praise. There's real gratitude. And as a side note, when we think about uh, our lives, you know, one of the most amazing truths of, of Scripture and of reality is that, that we fight idolatry, not just by bare white knuckle willpower, but by appreciating the glory of God himself. There's a sermon, it's a famous sermon, it's called the, um, the Expulsive Power, this is, he was a, I think he was a Puritan, so it's a long sermon title. You can be thankful that I don't do this. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, and then it's, there's a colon and there's some more information. But basically the, the, the preacher 
preached that there's an expulsive, there's a power that pushes out um, sin, that pushes out idolatry that is greater than just willpower. And that expulsive power is a new affection. And we see that here with David speaking. He says, I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. There's this affection that's rising up inside him. And he says, before the other gods, I sing your praises. The the idolatry that might be um, latent in his soul is being pushed out, not by his own willpower, but by his appreciation of who God is. And, and perhaps if you struggle with sin, if you struggle with these types of idols, it's not just that you need to work harder as much as it is that you need to see and know and appreciate the glory of God expressed in his grace. That you need to hear the gospel afresh for your own life. Hear that Jesus died for your sins, that he forgives you, uh, that when you put your faith and trust in him, that he gives you a clean slate. He gives you a righteous record before God. He gives you his Holy Spirit. When you begin to grasp these things, the way that God pours out his love, then all of a sudden it, it, it pushes out the, the idolatry that would try to worship other gods. He says, before the gods I sing your praises. We can war against sin. We can war against idolatry with thankfulness. And the world knows this. I mean, I, I don't know how many blogs I've read in the past five years about gratitude journaling and, and journaling just one thing of, of, of gratefulness and how that will affect and change your, your whole life. And there's a half-truth to it. The funny thing is, who are we being grateful to? That's the question that we have to ask the world. Okay, let's be grateful, but grateful, grateful to whom? And, and so we see here that the, the psalmist is grateful. He's thankful. He's recognizing God's supremacy over other gods. And, and the question we need to ask ourselves is why is he grateful? Why is he thankful? Look at verses two and three because I love, you know, it's a psalm, it's poetry, but it's, this is a particularly logic-driven psalm. And by that I mean he's gonna give us a flow of argument that's going to give us a very clear picture of why he's grateful. He says in verse 2, I bow down toward your holy temple. I bow down, I, I direct my praise, in other words, towards the place of your presence. I bow down toward your holy temple and I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. He says, I, I worship for, and that word for gives us the ground, gives us the reason for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, I'm not surprised by that, but I'm thankful that he goes beyond explaining that. Because I think that you and I, we could say, oh, we worship your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And we could get that on a mug and we could say, look, it's my steadfast love and faithfulness mug. God is steadfast in his love and his faithfulness, but none of us speaks that way. And we don't really know what steadfast love means. I mean, we... If you, if you were asked by your, one of your children or, uh, you know, someone says, hey, can you explain this steadfast love idea to, to our children's ministry kids or a youth comes to you and says, what, what, is steadfast, what does it mean that God is faithful? Well, he goes on and he explains. He says, for I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And this, the, the latter part of verse two, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. So he says, I'm thanking you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And then he says, and what I mean by that for the way that you've done that, the ground of that is, is that you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Now, that's a little confusing. 
He says, okay, you're, God, you're, you're, stead, you're, you're loving for a long time. You're, you're kind and loving, committed to loving, uh, faithful in your love for you've exalted your name. What is God's name? What is his, his word have to do with his love? When you go on to verse, verse three, he says this, on the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. Now, when you read the Psalms, oftentimes it will draw you in like that where it, the psalmist will, he'll say something in one line and it'll lead you to say, what do you mean by that? And he will say, well, I'm glad you asked. And he will explain it in the following line. He'll either rephrase uh, it to mean the same thing or he'll add to it, he'll expound upon it or he'll, uh, he'll say something that's contrasting to it. But, but it's, it's a kind of parallelism and that's what's called parallelism where one line and the other line, they're related in a particular way and it, and it draws out a larger a larger truth. And so just as by way of, this is how you read the Psalms, this is how you read the Psalms. And so he says, okay, I bow down and I give thanks because your steadfast love and your faithfulness, because you've exalted yourself. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, on the day that I called you, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. So in my salvation, the Psalmist says, in my being saved, both your steadfast love and your faithfulness and the glory of your name are brought to bear in this one instance. You see, it's in the salvation of God. It's in God taking you out of your, your, your situation and bringing you into a better situation, maybe not temporally, but definitely eternally, that we see the steadfast love of God, the, the committed, long-suffering love of God and his glory come together. God has glorified himself through salvation. He gives thanks because God has shown his glory in his gracious salvation. This is what I mean when I, when I say that, that God's glory is gilded by his grace. If God's glory is a book that's being put together and, and, and expressing the, the power, the might, the majesty, the awesomeness, the greatness of God, it is gilded with golden grace. To put it another way, if you were to get a $10 bill, my, one of my sons is into uh, currency um, and they have books on it and uh, we were actually looking at a $10 bill. Uh, there's a line on the outer edge of the, I think it's the $10 bill, and it just looks like a, you know, a solid line. But if you, if you magnify it, you see that it says 10, I think it says like $10 US or something like that. But it, it's in very small print, $10 US. And so it's not actually a line, it's, it's more text being written. And when we look at the glory of God, we might see the words glory or God's glory and think that that's all it says. But when you, when you take a magnifying glass to it, you see grace of God, grace of God, grace of God, grace of God, grace of God. God's grace is the way that he writes his glory. He explains that he gives glory, uh, or he, he gives thanks to God for his glory expressed in his grace. The clearest expressions of God's glory, family, can be seen in his salvific works. This is something that separates, separates all of, all of uh, other religions, other uh, worldviews from Christianity. You know, uh, th there's some similarity in Genesis, th some of the stories to, to other ancient Near Eastern mythologies. Not just, well, I'm not saying that, that Genesis is a mythology, but Genesis, the, the real expression of, of history and of reality 
has parallels to mythologies of the same time period. However, one of the greatest differences is where God is, is purposefully creating, you know, one of the mythologies, and, and, the, and the title uh, escapes me at this point, but one of the mythologies, creation is a result of the chaotic war between gods, right? The idea of glory in that mythology is expressed in terms of brute strength and power and, and expressions of, of domination. Whereas with the gospel, with God's glorious works, his glory is seen through his loving kindness. We see this in Exodus, where, where God takes the people of Israel out of slavery and one of the first things he says is, you are my people and I am your God. And out of that, we get the Ten Commandments. But he begins it by saying that there's a relationship. There's a covenantal loving relationship. There's a, a committed relationship that draws us together. We see it in the judges from, from uh, really Joshua and following until we get to the kings. We see that these judges express God's salvific work, that their strength is expressed in their salvation. Even Samson, one of the greatest, uh, well, not greatest, he was pretty bad as, as far as judges go, but one of the strongest judges that we see, we, we think of his, him as kind of the epitome of, he's kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger of that period of time. Um, his expression of God's greatness is in saving or beginning the salvation in, in, in crushing uh, the enemies of God's people, Israel. So he ends up killing a bunch of Philistines, which yes, there, there's kind of brute strength involved there, but the, the ultimate goal of that is bringing about salvation of God's people, loving kindness and faithfulness to this covenant that God had made with his people. Um, the, the exiles, the Israelites are, are exiled and we see that God has this, this dance that he does with his people, calling them to faith and obedience and, and repentance, and then uh, punishing the nations that he uses to discipline his people. So he says, I'm going to discipline you with the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And he says, I'm going to punish the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And if that strikes you as unfair, we'll take it up with God. Um, but he, he expresses his glory and his power through his saving work. And then we see this ultimately in Christ himself. That, that God himself, Jesus, God becomes man. He takes on human flesh. He humbles himself, as Philippians says, to the point of being a servant, humbling himself to the point of death. Right, when Jesus comes, everyone's thinking, okay, we wanna have, we wanna have Patton. We wanna have a military giant. We wanna have a king. We wanna have a, a Caesar, someone who can really command the people and bring about uh, a, a salvation, a political salvation from the oppression over the, against the Romans. And, and Jesus comes as, as a good shepherd. We don't think of shepherds as mighty. You know, there's no, there's no Marvel superhero that starts out as a shepherd. His superpower isn't, isn't lovingly caring for the sheep. This is, this is not something we associate with greatness. And at the pinnacle of Jesus' calling... He's not crushing his enemy. Well, he is crushing the greatest of enemies, but he's not doing it with, with sheer might or, or military strength. But no, he is going and willingly sacrificing his life on the cross. 
God's idea of, of glory is different than ours. And that's part of what, what we have to reckon with is that when God wants us to see glory, he doesn't want us to see with human eyes. He doesn't want us to appraise, appraise it with, with what we value as power, but he wants us to see that power, real power, real glory, real strength is expressed through self-sacrifice. God's power is on display as he shows, as he shows love to his people. He goes on, and we're, we're going to keep going fairly quickly, but he goes on and he, and he moves from his own personal experience to the reality that all people will experience. He says in verse 4, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. In other words, every king will bow and will see the glory of who? The king of kings, the Lord of lords. Well, why will they do that? Look at verse 4, the second part. For they have heard the words of your mouth. In the same way that Psalmist says, I've heard your, your, your commitment to your goodness, your commitment to your glory. And then he goes and says in verse 5, great is the Lord, um, great is the glory of the Lord. The, the, the kings of the world will see this. And what will be the ultimate expression of that glory that they see? Verse 6 says this, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So not only does the psalmist see that, not only do we see it at, at ground level, but he says, all the kingdoms will see it. All the kings will see it. All the leaders, all the rulers will see that God is glorious in that he regards the lowly, in that he opposes the proud. And, and this is a theme that we see in scripture. If you were to go through and, and, and search humility or humble or pride, you'd see James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 and, and even, even Psalm uh, Psalm eighteen twenty seven, all of which say something along the lines of God exalts the humble and he opposes the proud. Because when we are low, when we are humble, then we are in the, the best position to see God for who he is as sovereign, as Lord, as ruler. And when we are prideful, when we are haughty, when we put ourselves up against God, we are, we're actually putting a barrier between our ability to see God for who he is. God exalts the humble and he opposes the proud. All the kings of earth will give thanks and they will see the glory of God in his gracious nature. And because of this, we can rest in his glorious grace. Look at verses seven and eight with me. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath, against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. He's, he's exulting. He's praising God. He's, he's uh, meditating on the, what? Salvation of God. In other words, he's meditating on that which makes God glorious. You know, when the Bible says that we ought to think about the glory of God or we might ought to glorify God, it's not just that we think about how God is strong and great and mighty and omnipotent. All, those are true things. But in the context of his salvation, God is all-knowing. He knows everything about everything that I've done wrong, and yet he chooses to save me through the work of Jesus Christ. That is a glorious truth. God is all-powerful, and yet he humbles himself to the point of being a baby. I mean, if you've ever held a newborn baby, they got nothing going on. I mean, they're just, they're just one big floppy pile of flops. You know, I, I've got so many videos of my children and I love them. And, and it's so, there's a period of time 
just shortly after being no, newborn, well, they will, they will lock eyes with you, and if you, like, stick out your tongue habitually, they'll try and do it. Or if you try to talk to them, you know, make, make sounds, they will try to do it. And there's so much effort that goes into it, you know, You'll, you'll watch them and, and they'll try to move their mouth and their arm will flip or they'll try to move their mouth and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll kind of flail around until they kind of hone in on where their mouth is and then you'll see the tongue stick on you. are like, yeah! And that's what Christ did. The God of the universe, the, the most powerful being in and out of creation, took on human flesh, not just human flesh like Samson, you know, or, or Superman. I flew down and I came in, in adult manhood form. I'm, you know, faster than a speeding bullet. I can jump, you know. He came as a baby, vulnerable, weak, in his humanity, incapable of, of controlling his, his flailing limbs. This is Glory. This is glory. And, and the psalmist ends the psalm by reflecting on the glory of his graciousness. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. You can trust that God will save you. And he goes on, he says, the Lord will fulfill all his purposes for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Why can he say the Lord will fulfill his purposes for me? I would love to say that God will fulfill the purposes that he has for me because I'm such an awesome guy and he thinks it's really important to do that. I'd love to be able to say that, but it's absolutely not true. In the grand scheme of all of creation, I am less than an ant. And I love you, but you and I, we are less than the smallest speck. I mean, in, in, if we were to put it in physical scale, we're, in, we're so tiny, I can't even give expression to it. So it is not about us. There's not something in us that says, uh, that, that within and of itself, that intrinsic to who we are is a bright enough light that God would fulfill his purposes in me. No, but God will fulfill his purposes in me because in his saving us, he gets the glory and we get the joy. When, when we are saved through our troubles, when he preserves our life, we are put on display, not just as individuals who have experienced grace, but individuals who are reflections of God's glory. See, this, this changes everything. This changes evangelism. Evangelism doesn't just have to be now, look at how awesome God is. Uh, come to church because Jesus, it, you know, I, I had this shirt when I was in, you know, uh, growing up, and, you know, I appreciate the, the heart behind it, but it was this, like, hulked-out Jesus on the cross. There's blood everywhere, and he was, like, you know, it, it was clear that he'd been working. He might have been taking steroids. It wasn't the real God. I'm not being um, uh, blasphemous. It was a picture, and I think an inaccurate picture, and, and you know, it was just kind of like, oh, God is strong, but no, God God's glory is not manifest. It does, we don't need to make a superhero Jesus. We don't need to make a, you know, a mighty morphin Jesus ranger. We don't need to make a, a Batman Jesus, Superman Jesus, Wolverine Jesus, pick your poison, Marvel, DC, whatever. We, we have a Jesus who expresses his glory in his grace.
We have a Jesus who expresses his glory, the glory of God in his loving, faithful, or loving kindness and his faithfulness. He gives us this promise that God will fulfill his purpose in you and me because he by nature is a gracious God and because um, not only is our life in the balance, but his name, his glory is in the balance. And it's good that God cares about his name. You know, you might at face value think, well, that's kind of, is God prideful in protecting his name? But no, he's just treating it with the worth that it deserves. It's not foolish for me to be careful and, and you know, treat this iPad, which is, you know, fairly expensive with, with some care, the care that it deserves. I'm not being um, prideful or I'm not treating it with undue respect because it, it deserves the kind of respect that will keep it from getting cracked and me having to pay more money to get it fixed. We'll take that to the nth degree. God's name is worth so much because God is greatest of all creation. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named both in heaven and on earth, both in this age and the age to come, Ephesians says. And that name deserves protection. It deserves reverence and honor. And so when God promises that I will uh, fulfill my purposes in you, when he says, uh, when, when Paul says to the Philippians, I will f- uh, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He can be confident, not just because he's a kind and loving God, but because in his kindness, in his love, in his salvation, God is protecting the, the, the sanctity of his name, the sanctity of his glory. God's grace gilded glory is available to us in this good news of salvation. And, and if you are bored with the gospel, then you have not seen the, the gold leaf. You've not seen the, the light bouncing off the words. You've not seen how the grace of God expresses something about the power and the control and the strength of God. But if you have, you can say with the psalmist, I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praises. I bow down to your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word through your salvation. It's in God's salvation that we see God's glory. And it's in our experience of his salvation day in and day out where we have the opportunity to invite other people to experience his glory. I I want to encourage you, if you are a believer, you don't just have to know two ways to live, the Romans road, the the God test. These are all good tools, but they're good tools intended to get us to a place where we can say, look at how glorious God is in his graciousness. And if you can just bring people to see how you are experiencing God's grace today, they will see God's glory. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your glory. I thank you for your grace. I pray that we would become intimately familiar with your, your greatness, your strength, your power, your might, your glory as expressed in your loving kindness, in your faithfulness, in your humility, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you've never experienced salvation 
But today you want to, you want, you, you're beginning to see something of the glory of God, something of the awesomeness of God. The, the clearest expression of that is in the, the, the fact that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life that you and I should have lived, to die on the cross for our sins in our place and offer eternal life to anyone who would put their trust, not in their own abilities, but their trust in, in him. If that's you, if you wanna put your trust in Jesus, I would love to pray with you. If you're online, there, there's a button I think you can press or you can, you can reach out to one of our hosts. Uh, and if you're in this room, um, you can just pray this with me. God, I, I confess everything that I know to be sin. I f- confess that I have worshiped other gods, but I'm, I'm saying I'm thankful to you. I'm grateful to you because you have shown me your glory in the gracious sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. And I I turn away from my sin and I turn to you and ask you to forgive me of my sin and to help me walk out this life of faith, trusting in you, reflecting your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was you, please let us know. You can um, can text 474747 with the word, uh, one word, get connected, I believe, and it'll give you some links on how to get connected. But family, all of life is intended to reflect this reality. All of scripture is in some way, shape, or form getting us to a place where we can see with greater clarity the glory of God in the grace of God. So would you, would you pursue that with me? And then would you invite other people into that pursuit? Love you. Well, we are transitioning now to... Uh, to talk about one of the ways that, that we seek to express the glory of God in the grace of God. We have over the last few months been taking up a benevolence offering and that offering has been one of the means by which we extend God's salvation and grace in temporal form, you know, and it's not, we are not Jesus, but we are trying to help meet people's physical needs in order that they might recognize their own spiritual need. And so we've been uh, providing food, school supplies, even, even helping people with, who are really in a pinch with, with bills and things like that. And it's because of your generosity that we've been able to do that. And so I wanna invite you guys once again to give if you are able and willing. If you would like to give, you can do it in a number of different ways. You can make a check payable to Grace Covenant Church and write Sterling Benevolence in the memo. You can uh, mail that to our, our office. Alternatively, you can give online. If you're online, you can press the give button and, and it'll take you through that process. And you can write, I believe there's a memo line and you can say Sterling Benevolence. There might even actually be an account that you can select for Sterling Benevolence. Or you can give online through our mobile app. And again, that will take you to the same giving portal. But however you do it, thank you for your generosity. I wanna pray and bless this. Lord God, I pray that you would bless the offering, Lord, that you would take our meager, small offering and that you would multiply it for the benefit of of people all along the Route 7 corridor. So ultimately the people might experience the grace of God and then see the glory of God. God, we want to glorify your name. We wanna bring visibility to your glory. So I pray that you would use this benevolence offering and you'd use all of our efforts to show how God, you are gracious and that you have gilded your glory with grace. 
We'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, family, if you could stand with me, it's almost time to be dismissed. Thank you for joining us. If you're online, we pray that you would be connected, encouraged, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Love you, family. You are dismissed.